and these old white men that run newspapers think, bloody hell, I, I never had any ecstasy when I, and they're having, and they're having sex and they're having fun. We've got to stop that. So actually the, the, the war on MDMA or on ecstasy was a war on young people doing something that old, the older people didn't want them to do. My name is Ronan Levy, and you're listening to The Non-Ordinary Podcast, my sometimes serious, sometimes not so serious podcast exploring the most interesting questions in life. One of the wonders about using the same Gmail account for many years is that you can go back to the very first moments something entered your consciousness. When it comes to psychedelics, that happened to me in late March 2019 when my business partner, Joseph Del Morale, sent me an email about psilocybin and ketamine from CNBC following a conversation with Jute Bloomstock, the founder and CEO of Diamond Therapeutics. And if you've been listening to this podcast at all, you'll know that moment was a sliding doors moment for me. But what made that moment possible was the work of some very amazing people, many of whom you've heard on this podcast, including Rick Doblin, Amanda Fielding, and today's guest, Professor David Nutt. David's work has been instrumental to the psychedelic renaissance, including being one of the first to take a science-based approach to assessing the relative harm of drugs, as you'll hear, an approach that cost him quite heavily. In this conversation, we'll cover a lot of topics, including David's journey, his thoughts on drug policy, and the answer to the ever-important question about why you can't trust governments when it comes to drugs. But thank you, David. It's nice. I, I think we've crossed uh, paths many times, but uh, never actually met face-to-face, -face, oh. so very nice to meet you face-to-face. And I guess it's kind of auspicious timing as well, because MAPS just released their base three publication. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so why don't we start there? I'm curious to know your thoughts. Were there any surprises that, that what you saw in the paper? Um, anything that uh, concerned you or, or pleasantly surprised you, or was it just kind of consistent with everything they've published so far? Well, it's always really reassuring. <laughs> when a clinical trial replicates a clinical trial. I mean, to be honest, that's yeah. pretty rare in uh, psychiatric medicine. So yep. it's, it's ex extreme relief, I think, is the over overwhelming experience that basically it, it, everything pans out. It keeps on panning out. It pans yep. out even if you use different populations, or at least you begin to incorporate a broader range of ethnicities, etc. Yeah, very comforting. I, I'm I cannot see anything now that would give the FDA any concern. So I'm yeah. really hoping it is fast track right to the uh, to the approval stage. And they really just, boy, do they deserve it. Oh, my God. Yeah. After almost almost 40 years now of uh, mm -hmm. labor and labor, labor of love into this from for Rick, at least, and everybody else. But it's... Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I'm so yeah. pleased with him. I mean, boy, that it is. What he's done is amazing. And it, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like, um, and, and this is just my sense. I was a, probably too young, certainly, when MAPS got started. And, and truthfully, I wasn't paying attention to what was happening in the broader drug ecosystem at the time. But I feel like the paper you published in 2007 um, and then the subsequent one in 2010, looking at the relative or coming up with a, an appropriate scale by which to assess 
the relative harms of drugs and, and then actually doing the work in the 2010 paper was one of those sliding door moments in this renaissance, certainly of psychedelics, but I think drugs more broadly. One of my favorite memes after Joe Biden got elected a few years ago was the meme going around that said, congratulations to the drugs for winning the war on drugs. And I feel like that 2007 and 2010 paper was somewhat pivotal to that. And and so I'm curious to know, A, besides just being like a nice, thoughtful, rational person who took a science-based approach to policy, which is mm-hmm. what a, what a, what an idea, what a thought. Um, what, what inspired that? You know, can you, can you talk through that? I know you talk about that in your mm-hmm. book and, and certainly we will dive into your book a, a lot more because I have tons of questions, but I'd love to hear the story about how you, uh, Professor David Nutt embarked on this journey that has been so pivotal to ha- what's happening right mm-hmm. now with maps and beyond. Well, I guess it actually did start with MDMA. It- it, uh, I came back from the States in 88 and we began to okay. get, um, I was working at NIH. I was running the alcohol research ward at NIH and Bethesda, NIAAA, in fact, uh, for a couple of years. And I came back back, and, and we were beginning to get deaths from ecstasy. And my yeah. old boss, my old professor, David Graham Smith, was chair of the advisory council on the misuse of drugs then, a position I later took on for him. And um, yeah. and he convened a a meeting uh, to of what he thought were the right pharmacologists, including me, to talk about how we could how we could actually help stop this happening. And that was really what, the first time I got to think or read much about MDMA. And I be, and um, but I did had worked on serotonin as part of my PhD, and he was the world expert on serotonin. And it became clear that actually, if you um, if you used MDMA right, if you basically didn't over didn't dehydrate didn't overheat you know, took the right amount of fluid in sorting it was probably not that harmful so we put out a couple of recommendations so the government strangely listened to them because they were actually going to reduce harm and um okay. and things began to get better and there were very few deaths from mdma in britain uh after that which we, we try we changed the landscape by insisting free water and ideally chill out rooms right and I suppose partly because of the success of that, eventually, and then I was part of a major review uh, called the Runciman Report, uh, which basically re- was the first review of the drug laws in in thirty years. Came out in two thousand um, when I started to talk about how you should at least look at the different harms of drugs and kind of calibrate each one, and that was very successful as well. So I was invited to join the advisory council to come in as a as an expert or to chair their scientific committee. And uh, I came to the meeting. I said, well, you know, let me come and see how you work. And I, I sat at that first meeting surrounded by other so-called experts. And I was absolutely horrified by how unsystematic the assessment was. And I think probably being a little provocative, I I sort of chipped in from the sort of back seat. Um, you know, you guys, you know, do you th- what do you think about MDMA? It doesn't seem to be as harmful as you thought, given we've got these new policies. Yeah, and they, they were apoplectic. People were saying, <laughs> "Over my dead body, we'll never, never re- reschedule or reclassify MDMA." I thought, "Well, that doesn't sound very scientific." From you, just basically such you supposed scientists. So I said, "Well, okay, look, I'll do it. I'll take the job, provided we develop 
a systematic way of assessing the harms of drugs based on what I'd done in the ransomware report. And actually, and they said yes. And uh, and then for the next four or five years, every meeting we reviewed a few drugs using that nine point scale, which turned out to be the two thousand and seven Lancet paper. Right, uh, and that of course showed what I always suspected that MDMA wasn't as harmful as people wanted it to be. But also that paper itself then created created a lot of turmoil for two reasons. One is that it was in the Lancet. The second was it actually had the head of the Medical Research Council, Colin Blakemore, on it. So it was, you know, I mean, it was heavy weight. And that's, of course, why the Lancet published it, I think. Uh, uh, but it also put me in touch. Well, I was approached afterwards by a guy called Larry Phillips at LSE. Okay. He said, uh, David, you know, this is not bad, but you could do a lot better if you use this new technique called MCDA multi-criteria decision analysis, which I'd never heard of. Right. But, uh, but Larry seemed a amenable guy, so I had a chat with him, and he convinced me, and I had a chat with Blakemore, and Blakemore was still ahead of the MRC. They hadn't sacked him as a result of putting on his name on that paper. By the way, there were one or two papers I wrote with him where they took his name off, but that's another really? story. Well, the MRC okay. was too controversial, but um, because he was a very open-minded guy. Anyway, so... We met, and he said, okay, I'll chip some money in. The MRC will chip some money in. The Home Office will chip some money in. And we'll, we'll do it, really do it properly. We will do the full, the full Monty. We'll work out every harm there is of a drug. We'll scale it. We'll define it. And then we'll do the proper assessment. Uh, and that's where it all began to fall apart because <laughs> the results didn't accord with government policy. And an election was coming up, and government didn't want to be challenged by uh, its scientists that it was getting it all wrong on drugs. So. So they decided to sack me, and uh, and the rest is history. <laughs> well, the rest is history, but I'm, I'm curious to know how you picked up the pieces. Although I don't, I don't want to start there. I'm curious to know, like as you did this analysis, yeah. were you surprised by the results come, that you were yeah, coming out with? Yeah, well, it was particularly the, the multi-criteria analysis is um, is very complicated. It turns out, you know, that it took us a whole weekend of, of, of about twenty odd experts to work out what the different harms of drugs were. It turns out there are 16 different harms of drugs. There are, there are nine harms to the user, seven harms to society. And then defining those and, and, and you know, working out how you scale them. Uh, yeah. you know, take the whole weekend. And then actually um, re then doing the full analysis on 20 drugs took another whole two days. And it's so complicated. And in the end, because you do both scoring and weighting, it's impossible to game it you actually have no clue what it's going to come out like and a right. computer program called highview eventually churns it through and after about an hour you're all sitting there having your tea and waiting and to my amazement <laughs> alcohol came out top yeah. and uh, i thought wow that is and people were very suspicious actually and, and the great thing about this technology is that you can go back into it and you can say well what don't you like about it? Well, with you know, maybe we overscored alcohol in terms of social harm. Okay, well, let's just let's just get rid of social harm. Oh, it's still the most harmful. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, suppose we get rid of you know, you can you can play with it, and basically, alcohol is the most harmful. There's almost nothing you can do to stop alcohol being the most harmful drug. Um, so this podcast used to be called field tripping. And so we started it once we started the company field trip, which we spoke to you very early on. I'm sure you remember having dinner with my business partner, Hanan and Ryan, uh, over in the UK. And it was just going to be a chronology of what's going on in psychedelics, really trying to be a voice to help people understand, speak to interesting people. I mean, we've had Rick Doblin, we've had Matt Johnson, we've had just about anybody you think, uh, now you fortunately, um, 
to kind of just talk about it and, and keep the conversation alive and engage more people in the conversation. And that was great until Field Trip filed for restructuring. Mm-hmm. And so that was in March. Um, and a couple of our clinics still survive, uh, owned by different companies. But at that point, I changed the name of the podcast from Field Tripping um, because we we're no longer chronicling the experience of Field Trip mm-hmm. to now calling it How We Evolve, a non-ordinary podcast, because following such a, a kind of parabolic experience of going from nothing to being very exciting back down to nothing. It's, it can really shake the psyche and the ego. Uh, and so I, since then, I've just been chronicling my experience, trying to pick up the pieces of what do I do after field trip. Uh, and so it's actually very germane that I asked this question, which is, okay, so this report comes out and you get sacked. And tell me what's going through your head at that point. Or, or did you intend to become a a champion and an advocate like you've become or walk me through where you were at the time so i suppose i should qualify what i say by it it wasn't quite as bad as you in the sense that this was never my real job right sure i was an academic (laughs) i did have research grants i was studying the brain mechanisms of drugs and things but yeah my policy work was i suppose about a day a week uh um it was nevertheless very interesting and probably, you know, um, in some ways more important, uh, more influential than my my science. But it was it wasn't as if my whole family or my you know, chance to feed myself was was destroyed. It, the sacking was a, a, you know, it was a basic. It was um it was a challenge to to I suppose my sort of standing and my confidence and and my um my reason, but. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't. I didn't set out for it to happen. But I sure as hell wasn't going to do anything that would conflict with my knowledge. Right. And in fact, actually, the, the sacking, to be honest, was probably the. I don't know what what the word is. You know, the sort of the death toll started um, a few years before when I I wrote this now infamous paper comparing horse riding and ecstasy. Right, which was provocative in the sense that it made people think. It made people think very much. A lot of people <laughs> got to the second page before they realised that equity was a was actually equine addiction syndrome <laughs> rather than uh, than a new kind of ecstasy. But it made people think, and it, and it, and it, it created an enormous uh, reaction in the British establishment, particularly mm-hmm. amongst people who rode horses. Peculiarly, really, because they're the people at most danger. <laughs> the people are killing themselves. Didn't want to be told that they were, they were killing themselves. <clears throat> I got massive, massive attacks from yeah. um, various right-wing uh, tabloid press. By horse and hound wrote to me and said, "Did I not know that horse riding cured diabetes?" Well, truthfully, oh. I didn't. <laughs> uh, and it, uh, it it created it started the battle. I mean, people. No, I mean, actively, I know that there were there were people who were hunting me, gaslighting me for years before that, who saw this as the opportunity to try to get me sacked. And the, you know, the yeah. anti nut campaign really got going in in um, with ferocity. And and uh, and there was an election coming up as well. So I was employed by the Labour government, and I'd always I've always been, as you might imagine, slightly left of centre. Uh, yeah. But they, they they sacked me because they because they were being attacked by the Tory government as for supporting this crazy radical nut. So, so yeah, it was it was trying to tell the truth and and actually discovering 
there, it, it's I don't have the I could never be a politician. I just cannot dissemble. I cannot. I cannot. If people ask me a straight question, I give them a straight answer. I just haven't got enough brain power to to work my way around it. It's just uh, life's too short. And totally. uh, so politicians really don't like that when you you know when you actually tell them what they're doing is wrong. And more worse than that, that they know it's wrong and they're choosing to ignore it because it serves their political ambition. So, no, I knew yeah. it was coming. And when it came, I was very, very fortunate, really, because um, a, I got a donor, a philanthropic donor, who, who was very angry about my sacking. And he said, look, I can give you some money to set up a, a parallel organization to this advisory council, uh, which I set up. And it was called the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs. And we changed its name to Drug Science. And that's yeah. now chugging along. It's um, it's been going now for thirteen years, and it's actually we've now we kind of commandeered the space. So the the, um, the the public narrative and the truth about drugs is held by us now, not by government. I mean, who right. who no one in their right minds would believe anything the government wrote about drugs. Certainly not our government. Yeah. Do you ever? You know, I I, I wonder this, which is. I mean, fortunate. I guess we're in the middle of the pandemic again. It seems like everybody around me is getting COVID, right? Yeah, and and um, uh, but you know, we were all witness to the pro-vax and the anti-vax campaigns mm. that happened mm. over the last mm. few years. Even though the science seems pretty well established, um, mm. to, to to what extent do you think this conversation may have been a precursor to everything that? we saw with the anti-vax because like, you know, it's one of those things where as soon as trust is broken, it takes a long time to get it back. And certainly governments have done a lot of things to break our trust over the last few years. But certainly when you look at how badly we're misled as a result of the war on drugs, you know, you can see how it starts to put a chink in the armor saying, well, oh yeah, we kind of screwed up on that one, but trust us on this one. Um, Have you thought about there being a a line connecting the two at all? Or do you think it's kind of just broader social dynamics? Yeah, the war on drugs is is considerably more damaging than the incompetence. I think COVID was incompetence more than war. Whereas the war on drugs is, as I've argued many times, it's the the worst censorship of research and therefore and the worst destruction of medical progress in the history of the world by by some margin. And Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, why... Why would you trust governments if they don't show you their workings? If they don't, you know, if they say, trust me, rather than I'm going to explain to you why my policy might work so you can evaluate yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. It's just something I thought of now, because if you think about like the opioid crisis and I've, I've recently started um, advising a company called Safe Supply, which is investing in what they're calling the third wave of drug reform. And we see it happening in British Columbia. Uh, yeah. You know, we see Switzerland. We're in Switzerland proposing yeah. a legal trial with the sale of cocaine and, and all of that kind of stuff. Cause so you can see it have, having gone from cannabis starting in the early 2000s yeah. and, and really taking up steam and where it's going. And, and it seems like the logical conclusion, like the war on drug has to come to an war on drugs has to come to an end. I think, you know, eventually people got to come to their senses. When you look at the fact that it's cost us, I think the numbers are north of a trillion dollars, how many millions of lives directly. And then also indirectly, um, 
and, and this is only a thesis, but I assume that one of the reasons we became so dependent on synthetic opioids is because we took those nice natural uh, analgesics like cannabis and, and the poppy and all that kind of stuff and said, you can't touch these, but here are these synthetic versions that are nice and addictive. So let's push those out with a you know, a profit motive in mind. And, and certainly I'm a capitalist and I, I don't have an agenda against conscious profit motivation, uh, but it really got distorted. But you can see how those two things intersect being like, wow, there's a lot of indirect harms that people probably don't calculate from the war on drugs in, a, in addition to the direct ones. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it's kind of worse than that. Because <laughs> it's not, it's, it's that, it, that every cycle of the war on drugs creates more damage. So it's, right. it's not as if, oh, my God, didn't we get it wrong? No, we've been getting it wrong for 100 years. And we've consistently, actively denied we are getting it wrong. And right. why is that? That is, that is because, well, it's complicated. It's partly because of the, the profit motive in some companies. It's, it's partly sure. because the... the you know, the drug laws have always been politically driven rather than health driven. Yeah, it's it's because of sort of religious, deep religious beliefs and, and stigma. Yeah, it's I mean it's and it's you know a lot of it goes back to American prohibition of alcohol and the, and the reaction to that and the creation of the DEA. Yeah. I mean it is fascinating. You know, the, you're the only country in the world that has its own army against drugs, and yet you have the biggest problems. <laughs> Does that tell you something? I don't know. No kidding, eh? No kidding. It's it's absolutely mind blowing. Um, you know, I was just seeing like that psychedelic use is at all time highs, cocaine use is at all time highs, cannabis use is at all time highs, and, and still there's a whole army um, dedicated to trying to to stop it. Is so, it like at what point do you stop and say like this? This just isn't working. Maybe maybe try a different approach. I was actually, I don't know if you know him, but um, in, in conjunction with the work I, I'm doing with Safe Supply, I've, I've engaged Carl Hart in the conversation. Who's oh, yes, of course I know Carl. Very, uh, very open about this, as well as oh, Jeff and racism. We haven't talked about racism, exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. Thing, there's racism. I mean, you know, I mean, drugs and racism, as he points out, it's, you know, intimately, intimately intertwined, absolutely. It's a, yeah, absolutely. The yeah. very beginning goes back, I mean, probably before a prohibition of alcohol, but certainly the prohibition of cannabis and the renaming of it marijuana to focus the attention and the fear on Mexicans was absolutely classic racism. You know, and it's nothing's changed. You know, so it just changed the nature of the ethnic group, but there's, it's always been a, trying to trying to attack the other, particularly ethnic others. Yeah, 100%. It was interesting, though, because I was speaking to, I, I don't know if you know, um, Jeff Murin at, at Harvard, but he's an economist who who talks about why the war on drugs um, has to come to an end. And and, it, and I'm curious to know your thoughts, um, which is, you know, he came out with this paper showing that cannabis and psychedelics and ketamine and MDMA on a relative harm profile are quite low. Alcohol is quite high. Heroin is also quite high, you know, on the relative harm, but it does still feel to me that prohibition is still the wrong answer um, because we can see that people still want drugs, still use drugs. You know, mm -hmm. all we've done is managed to 
spend a lot of money, kill a lot of people, and resulted with a very toxic drug supply that people are still using, but now it's toxic. Um, so it, it does seem to me that you know, legalize, regulate, and educate seems like a much smarter policy than than what we've got. But that's easy to say when you talk about cannabis and psychedelics because the relative risks associated with them tend to be lower. When you're talking about things like heroin, where the risks become higher and the addiction become the risk of addiction and dependence becomes higher, it becomes a little bit of a more difficult argument to trot on. But when I was talking to Jeff, his his kind of point was we we pathologize addiction like addiction in a and of itself is a bad thing but almost all of us are addicted to something coffee food whatever so what if we just focused instead on trying to make sure that these addictions don't lead to harm as opposed to trying to prevent or stop the addiction in the first place um and i'm just curious to know your thoughts on on that and and a broader end to the war on drugs and what a science-based policy approach to trying to mitigate the harm and maximize the benefit might look like in your mind. Yeah, well, it's that's just that's just a tiny question. Haven't you got a higher <laughs> one? But, you know, the sort of the classic the classic answer is, I wouldn't have started here. Yeah, I mean, we are in a, we are in a situation now where we have done so many stupid things. It's it's almost like saying, oh shit we've invented the atom bomb oh <laughs> oh dear oh wait 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 which is i think what Oppenheimer said afterwards uh, uh yeah so i mean we've opened the fentanyl bomb yeah and the fentanyl bomb is a really uh, it's a way way more unpleasant dangerous set of bombs than anything we've ever had before and uh, how you get that bomb back into the casing i just don't know so we've we've really screwed it up, and we've but we've done it. And, and I have to say, it's not just America's fault. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's not. I mean, you know, you've 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 made a significant contribution, and you're reaping the whirlwind. But part of the problem is the United Nations and the the the, the, the this bizarre and completely fatuous attempt at the United Nations to regulate the use. Of heroin by controlling the production of, of poppies and, and thebe, right. which essentially created the drought, which then was filled by fentanyl, and which won't go away. And and that yeah. so basically the the prohibition is the international prohibition prohibitionist policies, which I suppose to some extent America seeded and and funded, have now become so massive that they've turned around to bite you in a, in a very serious way. So what you do about fentanyls is actually it's kind of unknowable. I mean, I mean, all you all you can do, to be honest, is you can make sure that people can test what they've got, right. and if it's too strong, tell them not to take it or to take a lot less of it, and to yeah. make sure if they do take it, they take it somewhere where you can, you know, resuscitate them if they stop breathing. That's yeah. the only thing we can do with fentanyl now. We've, you know, the it's, uh, you know, the the horses out of the out of these stables um but we need to learn the lessons you know when we need to be very clear that there are less harmful alternatives so frankly getting everyone off fentanyl back on the heroin would be a good thing yeah getting them onto morphine would be better probably than, than heroin and and so and 
you know, we've just we've written a paper a couple of years ago now with Steve Rolls from um, Transformers, the leader, using an MCLA approach to to heroin, and a regulated market, difficult as it would be to to actually instigate, is mm-hmm. the most sensible way forward, mm-hmm. because the black market doesn't care about quality and dose, and now is as you know is is using fentanyl to strengthen to boost. Uh, if heroin or other other opiates so yeah. we need to have a regulated market so if people want to take it they know exactly what they're getting and yeah. and they get it in the context of education and dissuasion and, and other ways of trying to help them deal with problems particularly if they're using it for pain so you're absolutely right if we'd allowed as queen victoria did use to use if we allowed medical cannabis for pain from the 1930s, instead of vilifying it as marijuana, mm. then we probably wouldn't have the opioid crisis. But, yeah. you know, it's easy to look Here. back. But... Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is easy to look back and um, notice all the mistakes we've made. One final question along, along this path, which was the people who you know, you referenced and you started talking about MDMA and, and saying, Hey guys, maybe we made a mistake on the relative harms of MDMA. Uh, and the people who were like over my dead body, mm-hmm. have you ever thought about what their motivation was, you know, were they well-motivated people, um, just with poor policy ideas or lacking information or, you know, I, I look at the U S and I sit there and I'm confounded, you know, when you look at Mitch McConnell and to be clear, I'm Canadian, so I, I don't quite subscribe or take the, the onus as much as, as some people. Um, but I, I'm just dumbfounded how, at how much resistance there still is. And I guess some of it is religious based. Um, but yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'm, I'm curious to know your perspectives on that. So it's complicated. Actually, yeah. it, 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 it I think if we just focus on MDMA, yeah, and this is actually unfortunately true now of other drugs in the UK in particular, the biggest problem is the media. The media like to create scare stories. Yes. And MDMA, the media particularly hated MDMA because, well, it used to be called empathy. If they kept the name empathy, it wouldn't have been a problem. Who cares about if kids are empathetic? But as soon as kids are having ecstasy, right? And these old white men that run newspapers think, bloody hell! I I never had any ecstasy when I <laughs> and they're having and they're having sex and they're having fun. We got to stop that. So yeah. actually, the, the the war on MDMA or on ecstasy was a war on young people doing something that old, the older people didn't want them to do, and. There are many examples of that where our newspapers have have attacked any new drug in a deliberate attempt to get it banned. Mm-hmm. Because as one of the very few major pieces of influence that newspaper editors have, they can expose infidelity in pop stars or you know businessmen, and they can try to get drugs banned. And beyond that, they can do nothing, and so they get drugs banned. And and, and you know, they changing the name is, of course, you know, a very a, a classic. Well, what they did in Britain, we we're the only country in the world that has banned nitrous oxide as a recreational right. drug. How did we achieve That's recent. that? Yeah, like last week. Yeah, both of last <laughs> week in Parliament. How did we achieve that? Well, the, one of the newspapers decided to attack uh, pe- footballers, soccer players were using nitrous oxide at parties, so they didn't get so they could play soccer the next day without having a hangover from alcohol. 
and the, the, the newspapers attacked them and attacked them. And they knew they couldn't attack people for using laughing gas because even the old ladies who read these newspapers would say that's stupid. So they changed the name to Hippie Crack. And then hysteria. Oh, my God, there's this new kind of crack coming out. And hippies. Ah, tie dyes, you know. Bloody hell, you know, all this psychedelic stuff. You know, the newspapers create hysteria, uh, moral panic, uh, just because they can. And I think they enjoy it. I think there's almost a sadism to it as well. So it's a complex thing. But but then why do the scientists buy in? Yeah. And I think there are several aspects to that. I mean, I think some of them do have have sort of religious backgrounds. They I think some of them do believe that deterrence, threats, fear. I mean, they still believe in it. Why they believe in it, I don't know. Because I think partly they believe in it, I guess, because they they think, hang on, well, if if the law doesn't work for drugs, maybe the law doesn't work for anything, which is probably true. But but the fact is, it's, it's a sort of microcosm of a belief system that you need the law. Yeah. And partly it's, of course, because they've, they've, put, they've basically nailed their colors to the mast this is dangerous to go back and say oh it's not dangerous would actually be to expose themselves as, as as kind of both either stupid or charlatans and in fact we're seeing this one of the interesting things and i don't know how you've managed it in the states but you've managed to get cannabis through that hurdle yeah I don't, your, your scientists aren't anti-cannabis but in britain our scientists are still anti-cannabis we have senior psychiatrists who say that cannabis causes schizophrenia and I say, well, if that were the case, I think we might see some more of it in America. Oh no, no, uh, it's got it. It's the British population. Oh, come on, guys! But they they have made their careers out of attacking cannabis. That they they cannot think rationally about it anymore. They they just spiel out, you know, this rote learning. Yeah. I mean, listen, Canada is a perfect example that we've had federally legal cannabis since, God, was it 2019 or so? And, and this guy has not fallen. Um, no. Everyone seems to be doing relatively well, all things considered. I mean, there's a whole bunch of issues going on in the world that are more challenging, but cannabis doesn't seem to be driving it. In fact, I, I, everybody seems to be enjoying it quite a bit because they're drinking less, it seems, by and large. And that seems to be a good thing. There's another angle to this, though, you see. There's another, there's, I think, and this we don't talk much about this, so let me throw it out to your to your audience. Sure. I think a lot of politicians, and this is, I'm, I'm sure is true in the UK, they create drug hysteria to avoid confronting more important issues. Right. And actually, it goes back to Nixon. Nixon's war on drugs was about getting elected. It wasn't that there was a problem with drugs. You create yeah. a fear. They distract people from the war in Vietnam, so you vote for the man who's going to deal with a new fear. A lot of British politicians do the same. We, you know, we, we continually tell people and scare people about drugs and about drug users. You know, we, we do everything we can in order to not allow them to say, "Well, hang on, what about alcohol? Uh, what about all the other things? What about the economic disasters? Oh no, you got to worry about the drug users because they're more serious." It's a way of it's, it's smokescreen, basically. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's it's the movie Wag the Dog in, in a nutshell, and um, and even with media, I mean, I one of the things early on when we started field trip, I had this sense that the tide had just turned. I had seen enough positive news about cannabis that the media was hungry for some positive sides, and and so we did a great job at field trip of just taking advantage of that trend. And we had about two years of 
unadulterated positive stories on psychedelics. They always had to throw in that balance that they're still illegal, they're not approved, and there's risks associated with them, blah, blah, blah. But by and large, it was just good news stories about psychedelics for two years. But then I knew the media would eventually have to turn because that's, that's, no, that's not an interesting story for so long if everybody's saying the same thing. It's actually really interesting. I had a, a guest on the podcast, Derek Barris, um, who wrote a book called Conspirituality. And if you haven't read that, you may actually find it quite interesting yeah, about how, yeah, it's, it's about how, you know, right wing extreme pol politics and left wing extreme politics have kind of merged together mm -hmm. around an anti vax movement and, and conspirituality. Mm -hmm. And so all of these people leaning into like a spiritual conversation, um, leading to bad health outcomes, social media influencers recommending things absolutely non scientific and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and one of the things he points to is the reason that science in fact doesn't win in an attention economy that we live in right now is because science in fact doesn't change very quickly right whereas the story of social media influencers they can change on a dime and it's new and it's exciting and they get press mm -hmm. and they can get engagement and all that kind of stuff so you continually spin out of control the message and and i've watched it happen with various influencers that their suggestions and recommendations about how to be healthy get more and more and more extreme to the point i remember i, I kind of lost the plot when people were uh trying to get sun on their bums like on their buttholes because it never gets exposure to the sun and therefore yeah, it was the particularly good <laughs> yeah, where the sun don't shine was literally and i'm like okay anyway the, the point being is um for two years, we had a great run with psychedelics. And then I saw, I, I could just kind of feel it, that the media was starting to shift being like, okay, we can't tell more good news stories. We got to start telling some bad news stories about the, the harms of psychedelics. And, and it started to shift as well. And I don't think it was driven by evidence or anything. I think it was just driven by an appetite to try and change the narrative to keep it interesting. In part, I mean, I, it's interesting. We're going to talk hopefully about my, my new yeah. book on psychedelics, <laughs> yeah. which, which, um, when it was reviewed by The Guardian, which is a left-wing newspaper, they chose someone who attacked it on the grounds that I didn't say enough about HPPD and that yeah. I wasn't investing a lot of effort into treating HPPD, which I'm not because I don't think it's a big problem. But it was fascinating that, you know, that was, that was the, the tenor of the – rather than looking at all the positives which are in the book. The, yeah. Thankfully, The Times, which was you know, more right-wing, was actually much more open and sensible about it. So, so yeah, I, I, I say to my team, I say to everyone that's prepared to listen, the fact that there isn't active warfare against the psychedelic revolution doesn't mean that everyone's on side. It just means there's a, a large number of people that haven't quite made their minds up, and it, maybe they're just waiting for an excuse to get back to the prejudiced state they were in before. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about the, your book. Um, first question is what, what inspired you to write, uh, you know, a kind of mainstream book about, uh, about psychedelics from some of the more academic pursuits that you've worked on? Well, to be honest, it was part of a three book deal. The first was okay. drink, which actually okay. was translated into the, into a U.S. The next was cannabis, which is there. But which wasn't translated because it, it it was just impossible to write a book that, that dealt with all the different state regulations of cannabis. It would have been oh my god, yes, keep it interesting. And then the third one was we built up to the which I think is the best, which is psychedelics, which is actually in the process of being uh, it's been not translated but sort of slightly restructured to 
with more American data, less British data, and it's coming out in the States next year. Okay, great. Uh, well, I, I read it and I think it's fantastic. It does a, yeah. a, a very, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly well informed about a lot of the stuff around psychedelics. Just haven't been in the space for a, a good few years now, but even then I, I learned quite a bit. And apparently I, uh, I actually caused a bit of a stir at Psychedelic Science 2023 in Denver because I said on my panel talk, you know, we don't really understand fully the mechanism of action of psychedelics. It could all be placebo. Uh, my point was that I wasn't, as, as a person interested in healing more than science per se, I don't really care why it works. I just care that it works and trying to get safe access to the most people. In your book, you go into some depth about trying to break down the, the science and, and, and the biological mechanisms as well as, I guess, the psychological mechanisms of action um, around psychedelics. And I think the audience for this podcast is people who are largely fairly well versed in, in mm -hmm. conversations around psychedelics and are familiar with the default mode network. Um, mm -hmm. So do feel free to nerd out a bit on the science, but I was fascinated in the conversation about, you know, how psychedelics trigger the, the hallucinations. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit more? What happens in the brain to create those experiences that alter our, our visual experience of the world? That, that was fascinating to me. Well, yeah, that was kind of intriguing to me. So you, you, have, you have to maybe understand that, you know, I'm quite old now. I'm 72. In 1969, I went to university, to Cambridge. And I was taught by the guy I've mentioned already, Colin Blakemore. And he was one of the great neuroscientists of his generation. And he was studying the nature of vision. Right. And he did a whole series of interesting experiments that are relevant in two ways to this answering this question. The first was trying to work out how the visual system creates vision. Because obviously the visual system is not a camera. The visual system creates some sense of, uh, of what we would call an image from electrical impulses that come from the retina. And yeah. there were many others, obviously, people like Hoogle and Weasel up in Harvard who were, you know, so I, I started off learning all about the fact if you, there are cells which respond to a shape going in that direction, there were cells which respond to a, you know, I mean, it's all about, there was edge detectors, movement detectors, it all, and that's the beginnings of the creation of an image. And, uh, and the second thing that Blakemore did, which people don't perhaps appreciate enough, which is only really coming back into discourse about psychedelics now, was to understand the phenomenon of critical periods. There are critical periods in the visual system. If, if you don't get your visual system sorted through at this period, it never works. So if you don't see verticals when you're at a particular age, certainly in, in, in animal studies, if you don't allow animals to see verticals, they can't see verticals. <laughs> so the skill of... So anyway, so there was two... And, and, and we're knowing now from some of the work people like Goldonan are doing with psychedelics, they seem to open up the critical period to, to allow people to... to, to achieve things they couldn't achieve before and that may be that may in a way be the most important aspect of how these drugs are working to change the whole way in which people construe their lives because you you get out of a locked in thought about you know perspective on yourself you open up a critical ability to change and then you change but getting back to the visual system so you know, it, you know in your the visual system of your brain there may be i don't know 30 billion neurons that have to work together to create an image and that's a lot of brain, you know. Yeah. So your visual system's bigger than a monkey's brain. 
and it has to pull all that together. And the way it does it is it does it through a whole the different the visual system is is made up of different parts which look at color, look at optical density, look at shapes, look at movements, etc. Put it all together, and uh, the putting it together involves uh, neurons which are deep at the bottom of the cortex. So the information comes to the top of the cortex, it's fed down to the bottom. The bottom neurons go out and tell all the other parts of the cortex what's going on. Those are called the layer five pyramidal cells. And for reasons we don't fully understand, they are the ones with have the high density of the serotonin 2A receptors that the psychedelics work with. Mm -hmm. And I think they're there because, because those cells make the brain work as an integrated whole. And I think psychedelics change your perspective on the whole. And that's when humans are a damn sight cleverer than any other species because they can suddenly see things differently and they can see, oh, I did that and I've made fire. That's quite important. Let's go and tell other people. But that's another question. So it, it takes billions of neurons to work together to, to create the proper vision. Psychedelics disrupt the, that interconnection of those layer five parental cells because it, they, they make the cells fire too fast, essentially. And that means you cannot recreate. So what you're seeing in hallucinations is exactly what we predicted you'd see from work going back in your 40s on frog brain and then cat brain with urban and resource. The primary processing, the building up of an image in your brain at the level of the visual primary visual cortex is through simple shapes, colors, and movements, simple elemental hallucinations that are right. essentially built up into a full image. Under psychedelics, you can't build a full image, or some of the time you can't. So you, what you're actually seeing is the primary workings of your, of your visual cortex. And wow, to me, that was just so thrilling. The predictions we've made from all those other 40 years of all that work kind of validated or proven with a psychedelic experiment. So that's kind of, that in itself is very exciting. And um, it made, actually, it made it all worthwhile, even before we even started going into depression or other disorders. Right. I find it, I find it totally fascinating because, you know, there's certainly a sense and feel free to speak to your uh, personal experience of psychedelics, if any, if you want to share or not. But I know in my experiences that when, for example, um, I went for a walk with uh, Sanjay Singhal and, and my friend Charlie, uh, and we had taken a, a gram of mushrooms and I was looking at the ground and the ground was doing kind of that classic psychedelic uh, mm -hmm. patterning kind of thing where mm -hmm. everything's kind of moving a consistent pattern. Mm -hmm. And I had a distinct feeling that what I was perceiving was a more real version of reality than my normal waking experience with it. And mm -hmm. You know, it, it can't help for me to bring up the the work of, are you familiar with Don Hoffman and the case against reality? Have you heard of his work? T tell me how you view it and I'll see if I can make sense of it in terms of what we find in the brain. Go his theory is that um, evolu we didn't evolve to perceive reality as it is. We evolved to perceive reality as it serves a an evolutionary payoff, so to keep us alive. So what we think we're seeing may have no bearing on what actually is out there. It's just the way our brain takes the data, processes it, and creates an image. And so when you start to mess with that and break down the processes it may be revealing a more accurate picture of reality or at least a different lens into reality uh than than, than we 
that actually exists. And, and it's interesting because you talk about the critical critical period with in animal models not being able to see vertical if you're not shown verticals. So it begs the question in my mind, and, and I know I'm going off a little bit philosophically here, is like, what are we not seeing right now as humans that can be akin to verticals that reflect a more accurate nature of reality than what we naturally perceive? Um, yeah, really fascinating. I mean, so yes, of course. Yeah, no, I think we all agree that reality is a construct within the brain. Yeah. And it's, there are many aspects of reality which we all agree with. You know, I think probably we all agree that I'm me and you're you. Uh, so there's, and, and those kind of agreements are quite, quite useful in terms of making human society work. And um, I, I think, you know, in a way, that's the sort of his argument that reality has developed largely to promote, I guess, if he was a Darwinian, 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 it would all be about reproduction. You know, basically, whatever we do makes us better able to reproduce and look after our kids, etc. And actually, you know, can't argue with that, can you really? You know, life expectancy is greater than it's ever been. And in most countries, most civilized countries, not America, of course, but <laughs> yeah. countries, you know, child life, child death in childhood is historically low. So there, so so the reality of the human brain is actually quite an efficient reality in some ways, but it right. may be, yeah, may quite right. It may be a completely inefficient reality in other ways. And there are two things I want to say about that. The first is the one of the, the huge problems with with humans is that language takes up far too much. It dominates so much of how we think. In fact, yeah. it, we can't really think without language, and which is unfortunate because I think there are, and again, psychedelics might be the only way you can actually escape from the language-bound constructs that, that control. And, and that was one of the, that's the great thing, wonderful things about, about Huxley. I mean, you know, no one could write better about a trip than Huxley. But he, yeah. even he, with his enormous linguistic skills, couldn't explain it. So, so that's the first thing to say. But the other thing that is intriguing, and I think, you know, it gets back to this critical period, is that you know, psychedelics put your brain back to where it, it was when you were a baby or a child. Right. And that means, I think, it gives you another opportunity to, to, try, to, to try to rebuild at least bits of it in a way which break free from whatever you constraints are put on you and and for most people there are a lot of constraints and uh, and for most people they don't even know their constraints and and they can break free from them so yeah so i'm very sympathetic to the idea that, that there are there are diff- many different ways of perceiving or realizing or appreciating what could be the different realities that are out there yeah absolutely yeah on that note and you kind of alluded to it but so we talked about the mechanism of action of what creates the visual distortions that we experience. Um, And I think you opened up the conversation. We talk about how during this critical period, we're almost taken back to being like an infant or a child. Um, And that probably creates a foundation by which we can rewrite some of the experiences, our lives. And and that probably translates to why we see psychedelics to be so effective for, for mental health applications. But I'd love if you could expand on that and, and and same also with um, uh, the conversation in the book about dependence and and how psychedelics Mm -hmm. seem to help us uh, deal with dependence quite a bit. 
Yeah, I maybe bring them together. So go back to, to what? Why did your brain cease to be that amazingly super connected uh, organ that it was as a child? When you know this buzzing, bubbling, everything is wonderful. You, I presume children see it as if they were having a trip all the time. What is the purposes of education and maybe inevitable consequences of just child development? are that you constrain your capacities you make predictions of the real of the real world the world in which you live the world in which you have to move and talk and eat etc you become extraordinarily efficient at those projections so you know it is by the time you're three or four you know you absolutely know that you're not going to walk through a table there okay it's going to bash you it's going to hurt you so you you know you learn to live within that the confines of the, uh, of you know, what you might call this, you know, the external world in a very efficient way, and then all that's all at the same time, you're learning to live within the confines of the intellectual world, which is which is language and behaviour, and to some extent emotions as well, and and the efficiency of the human brain, which you know, just remind people, the human brain is ten times more efficient in terms of computing computing computations per use of energy use than any computer humans have ever made because it's it's really efficient at doing things repetitive things it downloads programs that become very energy efficient which is great if you want to learn how to you know play tennis you need to download those programs on the other hand if it downloads a program relating to emotion that you're actually a worthless bundle of shit because your parents starve you or abuse you or if you lay down an emotion which is i can't live without my next hit of heroin uh, and i can't stop using it if you lay down those programs behavioral programs or emotional programs they again become they're laid down very efficiently and they're very very hard to break you, you know it can be impossible for people to break them simply by will alone or at least it may take may take months or years of of therapy or or, or, or some kind of residential type program psychedelics disrupt that instantly and that's the whole point they, they disrupt the brain in a way and we can see that you know, the image of the brain the brain's entropic. Everything is very different. Connections are made. That means that means the, the ongoing process is completely changed. So during mm -hmm. the trip, people have escaped from the, those thought processes which they've been entrapped with perhaps for 20, 30, 40 years. And that gives that gives that does two things, or well, maybe three things. I used to say two things. I'll say three things now. The first thing is people can see they can be different. Oh, well, they're. Not, not necessarily just their mind, but their brain can something. Oh, I can work differently and still survive. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they can reevaluate, and this is a sort of, you know one of the great things about psychedelics. People get insights into the past and can think of other ways of how they might deal with those things differently. Uh, and those are the two things I you know would traditionally teach. But I'd be coming, and I mentioned this in the book. I'm quite interested in this. This is a concept of the metaphysical impact of psychedelics. And this is this work of Peter Sojitch Hughes, who's now at Exeter University. That, that actually, he, he's framing the idea that it walked up till now, we, a lot of people talked about the mystical experience of psychedelics. And he's saying, well, maybe it's not mystical. Maybe mystical means sort of, sort of kind of, you know, seeing godlike figures or some sort of spiritual thing. But maybe it's more metaphysical. In the, the concept that you can think so fundamentally differently your brain can you can see so fundamentally differently 
has to have an impact on how you view everything in future because you cannot be as secure as you were before that you were right. It's impossible. I mean, you know, if you think at all, a psychedelic trip tells you you can think differently. And I think that metaphysical insight might be one of the most powerful reasons why people can change and change you know, in a powerful way for a very long time. There's been a lot of neuroplasticity. We've got all the plasticity. You know, you can lay down those new synapses and new dendrites and all that. You know, you, you've, got, you've got the physical changes which facilitate the re-engaging with other ways of thinking. What, what triggers the synaptogenesis? How does that work? Do you know? We don't. Well, we think it's a 2A receptor, but, it, you know, you can also see it with just like ketamine. You can that. Yeah, maybe maybe it's – well, it's intracellular, I think, is the answer. <laughs> and it's, probably, it's probably something like, yeah, there are intracellular growth factors which are likely triggered. I mean, the, the really yeah. interesting question, maybe that's what you're touching on, is that you can trigger synaptogenesis with drugs which, at least in animals, aren't – hallucinogenic or psychedelic i think we've got to say hallucinogenic in animals because we don't know about the about the psyche in animals um of course it's an open question as to whether they would be psychedelic or not in humans we don't know they've not been into humans yet uh and also whether they would work like psychedelics do in depression or addictions they've not been studied yet but in animal models of depression they seem to have utility so it might, I mean, it, they could, the whole field could transform overnight if we mm-hmm. discover a non-psychedelic psychoplastogen is antidepressant instantly. Yeah. And I'd be very surprised at that, but if, it, if that were to be the case, well, we'd have to think differently about doing depression, but it won't change our understanding of psychedelics because psychedelics per se are, uh, you know, fascinating tools to understand different forms of consciousness. They will always be such. Yeah, that was going to be my exact question, which is like, if you were a, a betting man, and maybe you are a betting man, I don't know, but uh, what's your expectation as to whether the non-psychedelic psychedelics are going to have an impact? I, I mean, my my personal perspective is, I don't really care if it helps people, it helps people. But my guess is, is that a lot of the value is in the emotional processing, those metaphysical or mystical experiences that are, seem to be essential, but um but yeah, it sounds like you're you're in alignment that you'd be surprised if they're as effective. But maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. Yeah, no, I would. I would be. I think it would be remarkable if they were as effective. But if right. they were, well, obviously we'd celebrate that because you know we do want to get people out of disorders like depression and addiction. Um, but that I don't think that would, as I said, I wouldn't deny the value of psychedelics for understanding the mind and consciousness. Yeah. I know uh, you do work uh, with a number of organizations um, like Compass Pathways, and I, I, you work, I believe, with the, the Beckley Foundation as well, uh, or at least advise them. And I well, know, I have yes, I have, okay. I have worked with Compass. I don't, I, I don't advise either of them at present. Just to be clear. Okay, my apologies. Um, I know Amanda Fielding, and, and you touch on this in the book a little bit. One of Amanda Fielding's, I think, passion projects right now is looking at the. Uh, potential of LSD, either as microdosing or, or large yeah. doses uh, for the treatment of neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Well, I, I, when I get when I give my talks, which is probably about two a week on psychedelics, I usually throw up a picture of about half a minute, a hundred, 
Yeah. And he was a regular midi doser. And Joel Elkies, who lived 103, the first British psychiatrist to take LSD in 1953. So I think we can say that certainly psychedelics probably don't shorten your life expectancy. <laughs> Whether they prolong it is an open question. Whether they will work in Alzheimer's is a completely open question. Very tractable question, except in the present day where these drugs are illegal. If they, if we had more rational laws, we, Amanda and I, the last project Amanda Fielding and I set up was at least five years ago. And that was to do a microdosing study with LSD. We wanted yep. to give it twice a week for six weeks and see if it improved cognition and, and mood in uh, anyone. And uh, we got permission to do it only if we could administer the drug in hospital. And we said, well, you know, it's a microdose. Yeah, but you've got to not only administer it, you have to keep them in for 12 hours till it's all gone. And we said, well, that's just insane. And they said, that's the way it is. So we never did it. We just couldn't afford it because, it, you know, we right. would have to pay. And each patient would have cost a thousand pounds a day simply to be sitting in hospital doing nothing. And that's an example of how the drug laws are so destructive and, and, and are obstructive to research. Uh, and, you know, the fact that, that a microdose, a non-effective dose, a non-perceptive dose is as illegal as a macrodose just tells you the drug laws aren't fit for purpose. Yeah. I had uh, uh, Matt Johnson on the podcast once, and, and we were talking about the nature of consciousness. Um, yeah. And, you know, what he said, I loved his quote. He says, it takes a magical level of thinking to believe that consciousness emerges at some sort of arbitrary level of complexity. I'm wondering what your work over the last 20 years has revealed to you about the, the nature of consciousness and, and the experience of being human or, or any conscious uh, creature or entity even. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with Matt there. I mean, obviously consciousness emerges when you raise glutamate activity and so it, it's, it exceeds GABA activity and you're awake. I mean, that's pretty standard. I mean, that kind of consciousness, whether you're awake or asleep, that's pretty linear. And we know we can easily show that you know, a degree of dampening of glutamate function impairs consciousness in the sense of complexity or, or capability or whatever. But I'm not interested in the glutamate consciousness axis. I mean, I, well, yeah. I mean, I am in the sense that I understand it's really important. Without it, I wouldn't be remembering anything I've ever learned, and I wouldn't yeah. be learning anything new. And I, you know, it's I wouldn't be, you know, but but when I teach, I teach. There are two dimensions of consciousness. There's the glutamatergic consciousness, which is about whether you're awake, whether you're aroused, whether you're attending, and every single memory in your whole brain that's been laid down has been laid down through glutamate. <laughs> To the and amperglutamate receptors. That's kind of absolute fact. There's no we're right. getting away from that, and, and that's amazing. I mean, that is you know that is you know like laying down all the pluses and minuses on a CD or on a hard drive of your computer. And I call it parcellation. It's a precision, the precision of glutamate to parcellate information in a way which is completely retrievable. You know, for as long as your brain works, is staggering. But yeah. it's not enough. And there's another dimension. There's, you know, the other, you know, the right angle is 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 the, the dimension that is provided by five C two A receptor stimulation, the psychedelic experience, and that's not a, that's exactly the opposite. That's about integration, uh, and it's about valence, and it's about making sense of things, and uh, and they're comp they're orthogonal. They interact, obviously, you know, because the integration you get. I mean, and it's a really good thing they do interact because imagine if those wonderful insights that you got during a 
a psychedelic trip you couldn't remember afterwards. That would be right. so wasteful, wouldn't it? And that's actually kind of, well, that's one of the reasons why I think psychedelic trip is, not, is nothing to do with it. It's not, not, not remotely the same as dreaming, partly, you know, because you can remember them and, and the meaning becomes relevant and persists. And, uh, and you need glutamate. So the laying down of the, the psychedelic memory is glutamatergic. Right. But the content and, the, and, and particularly the, the emotional and factual interplay is definitely serotonergic. Right. I think we were talking more about the hard problem of consciousness um, and, and the nature of experience per se. Um, but. Um... Well, yeah, I think the hard problem of consciousness is a semantic argument. I think, I don't think it's a hard problem at all. I think it's a trivial problem. You know, you know it's just a way we want to define consciousness. You can, de- you know, there are different ways of defining it. I think, I, 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 I think that's kind of a bit, not, anyway, I, as I've said, I've already said in this, this in, in this podcast, language distorts how we think. Right. And in the same, you know, Wittgenstein said quite clearly, you know, basically philosophy is a problem of language. And I think, I can, I think consciousness is a problem of language. There are probably different forms of consciousness that we all experience different elements. It's a, it's a, it's a tapestry and psychedelics sure. you know, weave an interesting theme through it. It's not, it's not just about facts. Let's put it that way. One of the things you said, and I'd like to probe this a little bit further, um, just based on my own experience, but with 5-methoxy-DMT, things happen, and I don't remember most of it, but I certainly came out the other side. Sorry. No no problem. Hi there. I'm sorry. I'm still running. I'm running on a, I'm doing a podcast now. Can I ring you back after? Sorry. Um, no problem. Um, with 5-methoxy-DMT, it really, I have no idea what happened. I know it was goddamn terrifying. Um, and on the other side, it felt like something had changed fundamentally. So I have no memory of it, but it did feel like there was some substantive shift. Um, maybe it's just out. subconscious. That's the point, Ren, and we're going to find out. We're, we're starting that 5-methoxy imaging study. In fact, we've already oh, so we'll find out. Okay. It's different. It is different in the same ways. It might it, it might simply be that you push push the serotonin system over some kind of kind of peak, and you get into another a period where you know where you it does actually cease to become uh, sort of valence driven and becomes you know just too you know, maybe actively suppressed or passively suppressed. I don't know. But let's wait till we finish the imaging, and then we can have a, a sensible discourse on why it might be different from from the other uh, the other psychedelics. And I mean, the truth is. Up till now, it's proved very difficult. If when you get equivalent doses, it's, there's no real evidence that they are different. And it may be that the, it's the speed of transition that's the problem. And the brains are the brains aren't very good at. Well, you know, I don't know how old you are, but you you've probably got four decades, haven't you? Yeah, you know, forty four. Four decades worth of function over the space of four seconds. That's <laughs> a big perturbation. <laughs> So the, the, the kinetics of these drugs probably has more impact on the experience than the actual pharmacology, but but we'll find out. Yeah, I, I'm I'm interesting. When do you when do you expect those results to to be published? When they're analysed. Okay. <laughs> I won't push it's any further. It's, 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 it'll be another year or so, I think, before we finally. It's not, especially something. It's yeah, it's quite a difficult study to do as you can as you because it produces profound 
changes in people's experience, which also produces profound changes in how they move in the scanner and things. So it's, it's, I was uh, about to say. Yeah. It's difficult to be sure. I, the last thing we want to do is to go out with an artifact. It's... Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I was about to say, like, based on my experience with 5MEO, um, I don't know how anyone could possibly sit still in a scanner through that. Mind you, uh, one of my experiences with was with the author, Irvin Welsh, who took it and laid perfectly still for about 25 minutes and came out the other side and was like, that was the most beautiful experience I've ever had, and I don't have words for it. And and when you render uh, an author like Irvin Welsh, uh, speechless, you know, it's been an expensive uh, and impressive experience. Did he come out speaking English or Scottish? Yeah. Yes, that's very true. Um, there's a lot I've noticed that in the whole discourse, at least since I've been part of the conversation uh, since 2019, that people take the conversations around psychedelics very, very seriously. Uh, and it's, it's kind of interesting because you go to a conference and everyone sits there and tells you how it's so important to do the preparation and integration and you have to do it in the, in the right environment, set and setting. And then um, you walk out and someone's like, hey, you want to hit off my DMT pen? Um, but, um, you know, there seems to be this a big push towards the medicalization of psychedelics. Uh, and, and maybe that's a necessary stepping stone to broader acceptance, but from a political or regulatory perspective, what do you think the right approach is? Do you think this needs to be medicalized? Or are we making uh, a bit of a mountain out of a molehill? I think medicines and medicine needs psychedelics. <laughs> medicine. I don't, I mean, I think, I mean, just to be absolutely clear, I mean, I, when Robin Car Harris and I started doing this work 15 years ago, neither of us had any inkling we were going to be treating depression five years later. Never, never, right. never crossed our mind. It was the science and the, the change in brain function, particularly the default mode network disruption and the, and the subgenual cingulate switching off and the fact that people said they felt better afterwards. Right. Uh, made us think, and there was an opportunity opportunity to apply for a grant. And we, that was, you know, this, and I, I think actually it's, it's one of the great, well, certainly in my life, it's way the most interesting piece of translational medicine I've ever done to go from a, a pharmacological perturbation of the brain to a whole new treatment for mental illness. Well, I'm very proud of that. But uh, if we had wonderful treatments for mental illness, maybe we wouldn't need it at all. Right. That wouldn't deny the value of psychedelics. No. I mean, but the last, I mean, I think the great where we are now, we're in a really strong position because because no one can say it's all your opinion. Right. We can say no, it's not. You know, there's, the brain is different. Fact. It's different before and after. Fact. It's different in people with depression and they get better because of this fact. So they can't say it's, it's you're simply it's some kind of collective hysteria that they could say about people like Leary and that you know in it. And, you know, the answer is we we're not here to change the political landscape because that approach didn't work very well in the past, actually. I'm not sure I really want to be part of that again. <laughs> it's not going to work because it may not work anyway. It may not work for people that are particularly stuck in their ways. But, uh, but we should, I think we can, you know, we can say categorically that these drugs are amazing tools to study the brain, amazing tools in medicine. And... Um, they're also, uh, you know, 
uh, fascinating tools to to help people understand the nature of, of self. And I, I'm very wedded to the the you know the Huxley concept. And I keep saying, people say, how do we take it forward? And I say, read read Island, read his last book, you know, which is a which is a roadmap for how you you, you use dance, yoga, psychology, yeah. peer support, and moksha medicine to give people as close to the optimal society as you're going to get. And uh, if we could do that in the context of not having someone on our border with a bloody great army that's going to invade us, it would be a very good way to go. Yes. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, I'll ask one one final question and I'll let you, let you get back to it. So you, you touch on the role of therapy and integration in, in the book. Um, and, and this is a little bit of a indirect way of approaching the question. I've witnessed the, the, the stock market break a couple of times in my life. Um, and I saw it in the cannabis space when a company called Afria acquired a company called Nuvera for $800 million and the stock market just broke. It was like, that was just the thing that people are like, this is crazy. We're getting out. And, um, and the other time I saw it was when Compass Pathways uh, published their phase 2B results, um, which I think most people collectively think were pretty positive, probably underwhelmed expectations. But I'm curious to know what your perspective on that was, because certainly the stock market did not respond well to it. Um, but then going back to the introduction about the role of therapy, I, I was talking to to George Goldsmith, the I guess he's now the chairman of Compass Pathways, no longer the CEO. Um, and he was saying that they found that preparatory work, you know, the prep session to be more important to the therapeutic outcomes and the post-integration, the theory being that the more you prepare someone, the less likely they're going to resist the experience and therefore they're going to have a more transformative experience. And the after work is nice, but not as essential and certainly more expensive. Um, and so two questions in there, which is, um, what did you think about the, the Compass Pathways results? Um, and then secondly, wh what is the evidence around the importance of, of integration and, and therapy uh, that you've encountered? Well, obviously, I was delighted by the Compass Pathway results because they are exactly, A, as what we found, B, as we predicted, because we did help them design that study. So I was very impressed. It was right. a replication of our work and category. You know, it's, you know it, it, there's no question a single dose of psilocybin, 25 milligrams, is a very effective treatment for resistant depression. Fantastic. Yeah. And um, yes, I, I completely agree. Again, you know, what they do is what we do, what we did, what we, which was prepare people to the point where they can get the maximum benefit from the experience. We know if you can resist it, you, you can you can stop it. You can if you can think of other thoughts, you can get out of it. If you can open your eyes and you know chat, you can stop. You know, there's all sensory inputs can override. In fact, we published a paper on that. You know, the different phases of this LSD trip. You can see the more people are integrated in the outside world, the less they're having the internal experience. So yes, fully understand that. Absolutely critical. Um, what about afterwards? Well. Yeah, I and mean, whether you need the afterwards or not, um, one thing's for sure, the patient like it, the patient want it, the patients absolutely value it. To deny it to them, I think, would be a little bit disingenuous. Um, and I suspect it helps. I can't prove it helps because no one's done it, and he hasn't done it either. His is a supposition. Ours is, uh, and obviously there are economic value in 
not having to have it. I, but in the long term, I suspect I can see how it couldn't help. I'd be surprised <laughs> if it was counterproductive. And we think we find that a lot of our patients want it to the point where in some of our, in our trials, some of the patients have set up their own groups afterwards to can to maintain the the learning dialogue with an audience that understands what they're talking about. Because as you probably found talking to your family and friends about your psychedelic trip, A, they think you're mad and B, they're bored by it. You know, I mean, let's, let's not, let's not put, the, put that on to the rest of the world. So, but was I disappointed that it comes? I thought that was, I mean, I thought that that is testimony to the absolute stupidity of the stock market. Yeah, absolute stupidity, and the fact that small farmer with their DMT study had this. I mean, this is moronic, beyond moronic. You have some of the most, you know, probably the most significant study ever done in terms of resistant depression with a completely innovative treatment, single dose, and the stock market. The stock market. I mean, basically, it's well, it's completely misunderstanding the whole point. I mean, maybe you'll say, well. They've been misled early on. I'm not sure they have. I'm not sure people like me have ever told them that they should have should have seen it as being the easy win it was going to be. It was never going to be an easy win. You, you, they couldn't have done better. And it, the stock market is, is basically, that's evidence that the stock market is actually in effect. Is, well, I don't know what the right word is. I mean, stupid's the best right word. But it's, <laughs> it's not relevant. It's, it's irrelevant to science. And then my fear, and this is, a, and this is why I'm really pleased with what's happened in Australia, because we cannot let the stock market decide whether there is a new medicine. That is yeah. not medicine. That might be profit, but it's not medicine. And Australia's decision to reschedule psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression and make it available through a charity, to my mind, that might end up being how it happens in the long run. Because if Compass can't get funding, no one's going to get funding, in which case... We cannot let psychedelic medicine die and doing it through a charitable uh, arm like My Medicine Australia may be the way forward, which is why I'm strongly supporting My Medicine in their approach, why I was part of the program that got it approved and why I'm, we're part of the, why Drug Science by Charity is part of the analytical program for monitoring the outcomes. I think that's a wonderful note to end on, and, and I couldn't agree with you more uh, about the the stock market, uh, and I couldn't agree with you more about what's going on in Australia and Oregon and Colorado and all these different approaches. And then it kind of went back to my question about, does this need to be medicalized? And I think philosophically, I think we're in alignment, probably doesn't, but more importantly, from a medical application in terms of treating mental health conditions access seems to be pivotal and if the stock market isn't going to fund it then it needs to get out there um yeah. and so that, I mean, that's it is, uh it is plausible that if you know if everyone was if all the world was oregon and psychedelic well-being was instigated early on in teenage years maybe we wouldn't need to treat depression maybe it would disappear but i think that's a kind of long shot and it, for the next 50 years i want psychedelics available to people who are ill as well as people who are looking for well-being a hundred percent. That's a beautiful note to end on, David. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Really think that the book was excellent. Um, and uh, obviously, I'm a big fan of your work. So please keep it up. And if there's anything I can do to be supportive to you or drug science or anything else, uh, I'd be delighted to help out any way I can. 